The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. 8474. We have Pastor Jason Walter, who is currently one of the pastors at Christ Reformed Baptist Church. I think that's in Vista, is it not? And he graduated from here in 2011, then took up that call uh, to be a pastor there along with uh, Dr. Jim Renahan. And so it's our delight to welcome him to the pulpit. Well, this is the first time that I've been back in this pulpit, I think, since some of my preaching classes. Uh, Hopefully the evaluation will be a little less rigorous. Or I won't hear about it, at least. Uh, I was very grateful to, uh, to be invited in the place of uh, my fellow pastor, Jim Renahan, to, uh, to speak uh, to you in chapel this morning uh, until I realized that it was uh, the last week of the semester and everyone has their papers due. Uh, but if you'll open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. A uh, familiar passage, certainly. And in many ways, um, in coming to address a group of future pastors. Now I know not all of you are preparing for pastoral ministry. Uh, This is uh, perhaps particularly addressed to those of you who are uh, preparing for pastoral ministry, but others uh, that I assume uh, you're preparing for a lifetime of uh, faithful service within a a particular ministry, a local church, uh, as I hope that you will be. And but, but the words uh, that I'll, I'll speak this morning are particularly addressed to, to those uh, who are preparing for pastoral ministry. And in, in saying that, uh, this is probably the least creative passage that uh, you could go to when you're addressing a group of pastors or, or uh, future pastors. Uh, I, I attended in my undergraduate a very small Bible college, fundamentalist Bible college in northern Wisconsin. And um, they had a pastor's conference every year and inevitably, one of the speakers would say, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, and the subject would be you know, discouragement or depression in ministry, because that's what we see uh, Elijah and uh, his example here. I, I feel, though, in many ways that this, this text has been misunderstood, and that's due primarily to, uh, if you'll excuse me for a moment, I lost where I actually had my notes. Uh, but is, is due to uh, what I believe is a mistranslation of one key word uh, here, especially in verse 3. So let's begin just by reading the first three verses. We'll read a few of the other verses in a few moments. Um, but 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, as the ESV has it, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Uh, The word that is uh, at least translated here in the ESV as then he was afraid uh, is actually not that word in, um, in, the, in the Masoretic text. Uh, it's actually, and he saw. Some of the older translations will actually translate it that way, uh, the King James, and kind of based on that, the New King James, but almost all modern translations translate this, and he was afraid. Uh, now, those of you who are Hebrew scholars know that in the imperfect, uh, the word for 
you know, to see and the word for to be afraid are at times identical, especially in an unpointed text. Uh, and so it's a, it's a matter of pointing. The Masoretic text points this to, uh, to read, and he saw, and then he arose and he fled. Um, others, really, if you look at the kind of external evidence, it's, it's, in my opinion, kind of inconclusive. It's basically the Masoretic text and the Targums against uh, the ancient versions, uh, the Septuagint, the, uh, the, the Vulgate, the Syriac. Uh, they all read, and he was afraid. But the Masoretic text uh, has, and he saw. And so the... the Perhaps the, the external evidence is kind of inconclusive. So we need to look at some of the internal evidence. Um, and if you look at this, it might seem on the surface that and he was afraid is the most natural reading, right? I mean, Jezebel has just issued a death threat for him. Uh, he's fleeing, it says, for his life, which doesn't mean, as it just kind of in English as well, means he, he fled, he went really quickly. Um, but he, it seems that fear would be a natural response to the circumstances that uh, Elijah was in. However, it's not quite so clear as you begin to read further and think more about this. If you look at verse 3 and you see where Elijah fled to, he, he, he doesn't just flee the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, it, it would have been safe. He would have been safe. Uh, he would have been fleeing to a godly king. He would have been under the protection as a prophet of, of the Lord of that godly king. He would have been beyond the reach, perhaps, of Ahab and, and Jezebel. But he, he, he doesn't just flee the northern kingdom. He goes into Judah, but then he goes through Judah, and he ends up in Beersheba, which is one of the southernmost cities in Beersheba. And he doesn't even stop there. He goes on an extra day into the wilderness. He leaves his servant. He leaves everything. I mean, you get the idea that, that Elijah at this point is just done with the people of God in total. Uh, he's not just fed up with the northern kingdom. He's, he's done with, with the people of God as a whole. And then, if you look at what he, he asks God as soon as he comes into the wilderness in verse 4, he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Right? So it's not that he's just trying to save his own life. He's actually, you know, in some ways suicidal at this point. He's not fearing death. He's not trying to save his life. He actually wants to die. Uh, and then if you, if you look then at his reasoning for that, you know, for I am no better than my fathers. Really, you, you get the sense that the problem with Elijah here is not so much fear. It's not a desire to save his own life. Rather, it's, it's frustration. Uh, I'm no better than my fathers. What does that mean? It means that I have been unable to turn the people of God back to the one true God. I have been no more successful in that than any of the prophets who came before me. Uh, now, there's another way of reading Elijah's motivations in his flight here, and that goes back at least as far as uh, Spurgeon, his lectures to my students, in which, um, and, and this is how I always heard this passage preached, that this isn't so much fear, but it's, it's, it's more of a, a letdown after a, a spiritual high, right? Because you think, what, what has just happened in chapter 18? Uh, Elijah has just experienced the confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and that was a big, dramatic, seemingly victorious occasion, wasn't it? I mean, fire had come down from God, had consumed Elijah's drenched altar and sacrifice, uh, proving that he was the one true God, 
Uh, The people had responded by falling down and crying out over and over again, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God, not Baal. The Lord, he is God. And then they had even gone so far as to seize all of the false prophets and and to slay them. It seemed like that was a big, incredible victory for the the true worshipers of God in Israel. Uh, But you see Elijah coming here in chapter 19, complaining that he's no better than his fathers. He's not been able to accomplish anything that the prophets uh, that came before him had been able to accomplish. No, but I think we need to understand what's happening in First Corinthians or First First Kings, excuse me, uh, nineteen is uh, not fear but frustration. It's it's not um, dread for his life. It is disappointment. It's disillusionment. It's discouragement in his ministry. Because what do you see? See that if if we translate that in verse three, then he saw, well, what did he see that discouraged him and caused him to flee? Well, he saw that here it is the day after this victory on Mount Carmel and King Ahab is still on the throne. Uh, Wicked Queen Jezebel is still holding the puppet strings and still in power and able to threaten him. And if you read on in 1 Kings and beyond, the, the encounter at Mount Carmel did not cure the northern kingdom of Israel of its addiction to the false worship of Baal. I know, still Baalism was still very much alive. I think that is what Elijah saw. He saw that what he hoped would be the end of Baalism and the turning back of the people of God to the one true God did not actually happen. It was not the great victory that he assumed it would be. And he saw that. What did he see that discouraged him? He saw the apparent failure of his ministry. He, saw, uh, he, he didn't see the visible results, the immediate results that he wanted to see. And therefore he flees not just out of the Northern Kingdom, but through Judah and out of Judah and into the wilderness. And you see what's happening there is, is I believe this is a, a powerful illustration of the importance of not relying on visible results as the basis of your confidence in ministry. I think that's what, what Elijah's doing here. He saw or he didn't see what he wanted to see. And that lack of visible results discouraged him, disheartened him, and he was quitting the ministry. He even went so far as wanting God to take his own life, so discouraged was he. This is a perennial temptation for ministers of the gospel. Uh, When we don't see the results that we long for, that we've been praying for, that we've been, you know, by faith expecting from God, that we can become discouraged, frustrated, and some people even to the point of suicidal thoughts and this utter kind of despair. And so what does God do with Elijah here in this frustration, in this discouragement in ministry because he was focused on the visible results? What does God do with him? Well, it's, it's amazing to me how really in many ways how uh, gracious and long-suffering and gentle God is with with Elijah. As we read on in the next few verses after verse four, uh, God leads Elijah through the wilderness, 
for 40 days and 40 nights. He provides for him supernaturally uh, so that he has enough to eat and to drink. And he brings him to Horeb, to Mount Sinai, to the Mount of, of God. And all of that, of course, intentionally paralleling God's leading and provision for his people in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt. It doesn't take 40 days to get from Beersheba to Mount Sinai. It was intentionally praying, and it's, God was reminding Elijah, reminding his servant of his, of his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness and his provision for his people in the past. Uh, we could spend more time there, but we don't have time. But then, really, I believe the, the, the key comes here in verses 9 and following. And if we understand that the problem here is that Elijah was focused on visible results or the lack of visible results, and that is what made him to be discouraged, made him lose confidence in his ministry, then it makes more sense to us why God responds the way that he does here in verses 9 and following. And what God does is, in essence, teach Elijah and teach uh, his whole church two very important lessons about why we should not depend on visible results as the basis for our confidence in ministry. The first of those is here in verses 19, or 9 to 13, uh, first part of verse 13, and it is in essence this. We cannot base our confidence in ministry on visible results because visible results are often deceptive because God often works imperceptibly. Visible results may be deceptive because God often works imperceptibly. Uh, you see that in verse 9. He came to a cave, he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, again, you see the note of discouragement and disappointment because there appears to be no success in his, in his ministry, in his prophetic ministry. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel who have, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And what is all of this? This is God telling, reminding Elijah that he doesn't often and he doesn't always work in the big, obvious, visible ways, especially with the third of these. You know, there's a the great wind and then there's this earthquake and then there's this fire. And what had Elijah just experienced on Mount Carmel? This fire, and yet even that great visible demonstration, proof that God alone was the true God, had not convinced the children of Israel truly. Maybe immediately, emotionally, they had reacted to that, but then the dust had settled, and with the dust had settled the, the ambitions and the, and the, and the, the fervor and the, and the resolve of the people of Israel to return to the one true God. And God is teaching Elijah here. He says, so that was a big, visible, dramatic thing, but I don't always work that way. And where is God in this? He's in this low, barely audible, all but imperceptible sound. 
And then Elijah knows that is God, and he's going out to meet his God. It's, it's God teaching Elijah, don't depend on these visible results. Visible results can be deceptive, and they certainly can be. Uh, you know, visible results or the lack of visible results are no accurate indication of the presence or the absence of God's blessing upon a ministry. And we have to remember that. It's too easy to forget that. If there's a lot of visible results, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is blessing. If there are few visible results, uh, doesn't mean always that God isn't blessing. Uh, again, I don't want to take the time to find my notes and I didn't get there, but I had some great quotations from Charles Bridges in his classic book on the, uh, the, 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 the Christian ministry. Uh, a book, by the way, that I picked up for 25 cents in the library once when, it was, uh, when I was a student. I'm very grateful that I did. But he makes the point that we're not the best judges of the success or failure of our ministry based on what we can see. Apparent is not the measure of, of success in the Christian ministry. And God often does hide the visible results of our ministries from us for two very gracious reasons, to keep us humble and to keep us diligent. Because if we saw, if we could see immediately the results of our ministry, we would become proud and we would become lazy. We would rest on our laurels and, and coast. So God often graciously hides those results. He works in those imperceptible ways. There's this undercurrent of piety that isn't always brought to the surface. There's this work going on underground that you cannot always see and that God is gracious in some ways not to let us see. So the first reason uh, that God teaches Elijah and us here why we ought not to depend on visible results as the basis of our confidence in ministry is that those visible results can be deceptive because God often works imperceptibly. Secondly, though, uh, he goes on and he teaches uh, Elijah that visible results uh, sometimes are, are not only deceptive, but they may be delayed. They may be delayed because God often works incrementally. They may be delayed because God often works incrementally. And that's what we see in uh, verses 13 and following. Elijah evidently doesn't learn the first lesson because when God asks him a second time in verse 13, what are you doing here? He repeats the exact same words. And so, in verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What is God telling Elijah here? He's saying, all right, I didn't work in the way you wanted me to work. I didn't give the immediate visible results that you wanted from the encounter on Mount Carmel. Says, but I have a plan. That was what Elijah wanted it to work. But God had his own plan. And God's plan was much more incremental rather than immediate. He says, go, anoint Elisha, anoint uh, the, the king of Syria, anoint another king in Israel. Now, as you see that play out in the rest of 1 Kings, Elijah does anoint Elisha, but it's actually Elisha who anoints Hazael and who anoints Jehu. It's not Elijah. 
But you see, Elisha's ministry was an extension of Elijah's. It was, it was his successor, Elisha, who would carry out this plan. And as you go and see, you know, God did use Elisha to further confront Baal, Baalism within Israel. You see, Hazael, the king of Syria, he was used of God to punish his sinful people of Israel for their worship of Baal. And eventually it's Jehu whom God uses. If you read in 2 Kings, it's Jehu who finally destroys the entire wicked house of Ahab and Jezebel and who kills the remaining prophets of Baal and destroys the temple of Baal. And so you read in 2 Kings that Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. See, God had a plan, but he's telling Elijah, this plan goes even beyond your ministry. All of this happened. Baalism was wiped out of Israel, but it was long after Elijah had been taken to heaven. And then positively, God reminds him, look, you don't think I'm working, but I am. I'm still preserving my elect. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I'm working. It might be more incremental. It might be slower. And how often ministers can get so frustrated with the slow pace of ministry. Not only is it imperceptible, but it's, but it's incremental. Uh, God is not always uh, the hare. Most often he's the tortoise. It's slow but steady, it's incremental, and yet it is invincible, and it is inevitable. It's unable to be stopped. And God has that plan, and that plan might go long, far beyond our ministries, far beyond even our lifetime. Uh, another quotation from Charles Bridges in The Christian Ministry, one that I love and I remind myself of frequently, he says, the seed, he's talking about the seed that we sow in our ministry. So the seed may lie under the clods till we lie there <laughs> and then spring up. Seed may lie under the clods until we lie there and then spring up. And that's exactly what God is teaching Elijah here. One may sow, another may water, another may reap, and yet it is always God who will give the harvest, because he has promised to. Why can we not depend on visible results as the basis of our confidence in ministry? It's because visible results are often deceptive because God often works incrementally or in, imperceptibly. Visible results also may be long delayed because God often works incrementally. That's then without those visible results, if those aren't the basis of our confidence in ministry, then what is? Well, it's simply faith. It's faith, faith in God, faith in God's power, faith in God's promises, because God has promised us. He promises Elijah here, and Elijah had to receive that by faith, and then he went back and he did what God had called him to do. I have a plan, I'm going to take care of Baalism in Israel, I'm going to preserve my elect. Those are the same promises that God has given to his church. His word will not return to him void. He will save his elect. He will preserve them. He will sanctify his saints. He will grow his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, no matter what it looks like to us. And so the final exhortation in all of this is the exhortation that we must minister as we are to walk by faith and not by sight by faith, not by what we see, not by the visible results that God may or may not grant to our ministries, but our confidence in ministry, the way that we can keep from becoming so discouraged and disheartened like Elijah is faith, trusting in God, trusting in his power, trusting in his promises that cannot fail. 
Praise God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for your Spirit's help in understanding and in applying your word. Father, I pray uh, for these men and women who are here, some of whom uh, may become pastors, others who will be under faithful pastors, Lord willing, for the rest of, of their lives. We pray that uh, even if this doesn't directly apply to them now, that this will be something they'll file away. They'll remember these lessons that you taught to one of your discouraged servants so long ago. Uh, that We will not look to what we can see, but we will look to the things that are unseen. We will walk and minister by faith and not by sight so that you will get all the glory. Father, continue your work, imperceptible, incremental as it may be, yet invincible and inevitable. Glorify yourself through your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2016, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.